<clears throat> Excuse me. Well, it's, uh, it's that time of year for me to watch my favorite movie, Christmas Vacation. It's like a tradition every year. I've got to watch Christmas Vacation. Uh, I love this movie. I love Clark Griswold. You know Clark. He's, uh, he's got these enormous hopes for the perfect family Christmas. You know, Clark is a guy that has large longings for peace and for wholeness and shalom. He longs for his family to be one and together and to share love and joy and holiday cheer and for everything to be as it is supposed to be. Clark has enormous longings, but as you know, in the story, everything goes wrong. One thing after another, in fact, the perfect Griswold family Christmas becomes one large disaster. Cousin Eddie shows up, you know, empties his RV into the, into the uh, drainage there in the neighborhood. Uh, Uncle Lewis blows up the perfect Griswold family Christmas tree. You know, everything goes wrong. <clears throat> it's a disaster. And this is a very popular movie. I know I'm not the only one that likes to watch the Griswold family Christmas here. And I think it's so popular because so many of us can relate to it. Can't you relate? I mean, even if you're not quite as clumsy as Clark, I mean, for all of us, Christmas is a season where our hopes and our expectations are unusually big. And we're looking to this season of life to bring and deliver what it just never can. In this season, we're longing for wholeness. We're longing for oneness, for relationships to be as they should, for, for joy to, to ring out. And so often we approach this season trying to squeeze life out of it. And yet, it's one of the seasons where we taste more sadness and disappointment than any other time in the year. It's one of the, it's one of the main seasons of the year where we are reminded of the brokenness of the world that we live in. So often, this is our reality for Advent. We come with enormous hopes, but taste great disappointment in this season. You know, if I'm honest, for me, I'm often really sad at Christmas time. Yes, I, I love it, I look forward to it, I really enjoy uh, all that comes along with it, but I often find my t- myself sad and disappointed. Just yesterday morning, uh, Hutchinson, our oldest, woke up and had what would appear to us to be the flu. And my first thought that ran through my mind is, Lord, really? It's Christmas. Are you really going to let him get the flu at Christmas time and ruin all of these hopes and dreams that we have for this time? You know, it's a time that we expect for nothing to go wrong, but in fact, it oftentimes becomes such a disappointment and such a reminder of the brokenness even in our own families. Was we come to the book of Isaiah this morning, And we see a promise that Isaiah is holding out to us. A promise that is almost inconceivable even to imagine of what Messiah will bring whenever he 
enters into the world to consummate his kingdom and the global implications for that, it's a picture that's almost hard to even get your, your mind around. And of course, Isaiah delivers this promise, speaks this promise to a people who were living in exile. Isaiah is writing to a people who have been extracted from the land, conquered. They're living under the rule of a foreign people. And they're beginning to wonder, has God forgotten about us? Has He deserted us? And in the midst of exile and brokenness and the full reality of things not being the way that they're supposed to be, Isaiah speaks a message of hope. In fact, the book of Isaiah is filled with these pictures of what will happen when Messiah comes. We're in the season of Advent. And Advent simply means coming or appearing. And so it's a season where traditionally in the church, we look back to the first coming of Christ, whenever He entered into our world to take on flesh and to take our place, becoming our perfect substitute. And it tends to be our focus only during this season to remember His first coming. But traditionally in the church, the season of Advent is also an opportunity to look ahead to His second Advent. His second coming. So it becomes a time of looking back and looking ahead, a time of remembering His appearing and all that it's accomplished, but a time of longing and anticipating all that is to come. And so this morning, as we look at this picture that Isaiah paints for us of Messiah and His new world, we're primarily looking ahead to all that He would bring. And for us, His first advent, His first coming and His work on the cross becomes for us a guarantee of what He will do whenever He returns. So in our passage here, we'll see three basic pieces of this vision that He gives to us. The first one is we'll see the worldwide reign of Messiah. Secondly, we'll see the the transformation of creation that He will bring about. And thirdly, we'll see this glorious picture of all the nations being gathered unto Messiah. So let's jump into our passage here. Throughout the book of Isaiah, as I mentioned, there are these pictures and glimpses into the coming of Messiah, and they they build and they grow and focus on different features. And the climax is at the end of Isaiah, in Isaiah 65, with the new heavens and the new earth exploding into this world. But here in Isaiah 11, he begins with talking about Messiah coming in the most unlikely places. He says right there in verse 1, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The image that he's using here to describe Messiah is a, it's the image of a tree, like a family tree. And Jesse, who he refers to here as being at the the root of this family tree, was, of course, David's father, King David's father, the greatest of Israel's kings, the one to whom God came and made an everlasting covenant. God came to King David and made him a promise that one day, David, one of your sons will sit upon your throne and his kingdom will fill the whole earth And he will usher in worldwide peace. And my kingdom will come in its fullness on the earth 
through His reign. It was an enormous kind of promise that had never been made before to King David. But of course, if you know about the story, you know things did not go so well after David. In fact, David's sons in this royal line began to become worse and worse and worse. And the kings of Israel, who were supposed to lead their people in covenant keeping, were leading their people into greater wickedness than they had ever known. And it gets so bad with David's line that God decides to send his people into exile, into the land, under the rule of a foreign nation. And as Isaiah speaks this promise, he's speaking to a people who find themselves in exile. So that great tree of David's coming glorious kingdom, well, it to them looked a whole lot more like a stump. You see, in exile, God had taken an axe to the tree and cut it down. But have you ever seen a tree, a big tree, that gets lopped off down to the ground and then you begin to see a little shoot emerge? A little green shoot begun to come up and you begin to think, wow, maybe it will still live. After all of that, maybe there's still life in it. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. In the midst of your reality in exile, Whenever everything looks lost, a branch will emerge and it will grow. And it will grow so large that it will be larger than the tree ever was. And it will bear worldwide fruit, all that was promised to King David. And so that's how he introduces us to the coming of Messiah, the son of David, on whom all of those promises would rest. Then he begins to talk about the anointing of Messiah. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So this coming Messiah would be anointed with the Holy Spirit like no one ever before him. In fact, the word Messiah means anointed one, and it means... God's Spirit resting on them, empowering them for a special task. Throughout the Old Testament, there were numerous people that would receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Special people at special times for special tasks. But this Messiah would receive the power of God's Spirit as never before. He would have wisdom and knowledge to know how to rule over His kingdom. He would have counsel and power, that's military counsel, to know how to build his kingdom throughout the whole earth. And at the very root of it, he would have an intimate knowledge of the Lord. In fact, his delight would be in obedience to the Father. He would be a perfect king, a covenant-keeping king, just the king that Israel needed. And so we're given this picture of the glory and the empowerment of the coming Messiah But then in the next few verses, he begins to talk about the reign that he will bring. And the interesting thing here about this description of his reign is that it focuses in on the justice that he will bring. Look at what he says here. He will not, second part of verse 3, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. In other words, he will rule and judge with perfect equity. In other words, people's appearance will not sway him. He will not show favoritism 
He will not be swayed in his judgments by what he hears or by mere talk, but he will judge perfectly with perfect justice. With righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. The rod of his mouth is his words. It's a way of speaking of his words. So powerful will this Messiah be that simply his words will accomplish his worldwide reign. Absolutely awesome. The interesting thing about how his rule is described is that it's described here almost exclusively in terms of justice. Now, we tend to think about justice in a more narrow sense. We tend to think about justice and the related terms that are used here as judging and righteousness as having to do with punishment for wrongdoing. And that's certainly an aspect of justice. But the total concept of justice is far more broad. It's far more setting things right. That's what justice is. It's giving people their due. In other words, from the perspective of the Scriptures, the problem with humanity, the tragic result of sin, is that the earth is filled with injustice. You see, God has created His image to flourish. God created people to love other people above themselves. He created us to be those who would disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of the community. That is His design for humanity. But the reality for this whole world in all of human history is it's just the opposite of that. Throughout human history, because of the fall, people oppress one another. They take from one another. They disadvantage the community for their own advantage. And from the perspective of the Scriptures, this is what is wrong with all of humanity. Oppression, discrimination, poverty. All of these things is what God is principally concerned with here. And the picture that we see here of Messiah and His reign is that as another prophet puts it, justice will roll down like a river. As King Jesus comes to extend His reign over all the earth, there will be perfect justice. He will look out for the vulnerable, for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, for the immigrant, for those who are needy. In the Scriptures, those are the people who God is so often concerned with because they're most vulnerable to injustice. And so God, throughout Scriptures, in describing Himself as a God of justice, says, My eyes are on them. I'm a father to the fatherless. I am there for the needy. He is a God of justice. And whenever Messiah comes and brings His worldwide worldwide reign, it will be a reign of perfect justice. In a word, He will make everything right. Imagine that. Imagine the injustice you taste of in your life. Imagine in your world all the things that are not as they should be. We could spend hours sharing with one another now the sadness and the tragedy of life in this world. Messiah will come to make everything right. It's quite the picture. So we see his reign in the first five verses. 
But then Isaiah moves on to look at the transformation he will bring even to the earth. Did you hear that in the reading? This astonishing picture of creation, the entire created order changed. Look at verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. An astonishing picture of total peace, so saturating creation that it literally transforms the animal world. Now think about those, those groups of animals that he mentions there. A wolf and a lamb, a leopard and a goat. What happens if you put today, what happens if you put a lamb and a wolf together? In about two seconds, there will only be one animal standing there, right? The same thing with a leopard. You know, there's, there will be such transformation even to the created order, that there will be no more violence even among animals. Astonishing picture of peace there. He also talks about a little child leading a lion on a leash. An incredible picture of dominion, the dominion of humanity being so restored and so made perfect that even a child would exercise Perfect dominion over a vicious animal. It's astonishing. And then we get this picture of a child in verse 8 sticking its hand into a cobra's nest. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. It's almost hard to even imagine to just think of that image. You see what Isaiah is saying here is that there will be a reversal of the curse. Remember what happened in Genesis 3? As everything went south and everything fell and God pronounced curse on all of creation, the essence of the curse was whenever He spoke to the serpent and He said, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. I will make war between your seed and the seed of the woman. Isaiah is giving us a poetic picture here of the total reversal of the curse. Turned back. All that is wrong becomes untrue. And then in verse 9, the summary of all that has taken place. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my whole mountain. Why? For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. What a picture. The earth, so saturated with the intimate, personal knowledge and presence of God that it's like how the waters cover the seas. How do waters cover the seas? They fill it to its fullness. You can hardly even imagine a sea without water. You can't. That's what he's saying. At the return of Messiah, so total will be the renewal of all things. God will fill everything with Him. Self. An amazing picture of whenever he comes that he will actually transform the earth and all of creation, the renewal of all things. Now this forms a sharp contrast to what we normally think as we think of the world to come, as we think of redemption. We are so 
predisposed to think of redemption as being non-material, as being spiritual, as if, as if redemption means us leaving this world and leaving this body and, and going up to be spirits in the sky and sitting on clouds and playing harps and singing in a choir for all of eternity. I don't know about you, that does not sound like heaven to me. I don't want to sing in a choir for all of eternity, or even once. That sounds a lot more like the other place than heaven to me. You see, the picture we get here is that it's not immaterial some other place, but that redemption will happen to this creation that God has made. You see, that has enormous implications in our life now. If you think redemption is all about spirit and non-physical, it will affect the way that you live your life here and now. It will, it will affect the way that you treat people, just people. The way that you treat your body, the way that you treat the earth, the way that you even treat work. You see, if all of this stuff is just a holding pattern and we're waiting for it to all get annihilated and to go to some place where we're just spirits, that's just not compelling to me. You see, God created this earth and said, this is good, this is what I like. This is my plan right here. And he will not abandon it. Redemption is all about him taking this world that's broken and marred and vandalized by sin and making it new. And what Isaiah says to us, that is what Messiah will bring. The renewal of all things. That's our hope. So we see his reign in verses 1 through 5. We see the transformation of the earth itself. And then finally in verse 10, we get this awesome image of all of the nations of the earth being gathered unto him. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. Isaiah likens him to a great banner a great banner that, that covers and can be seen through all the earth. You know, a banner is it's a flag, and flags are used to declare ownership over a particular place, and, and banners are a, a rallying point, something that would draw people to it. And Isaiah here says that, that Messiah in that day will be like a great banner on the earth that will draw all men to himself. <clears throat> in fact, he says, the nations will rally to him. I love that word, rally. It's this sense of haste, this sense of being magnetically drawn to this king and and with great joy and eager anticipation, all the nations of the earth flocking to Israel's king, coming to bow down, coming to experience the total and complete rest that he will bring on the earth. What an image. People from every nation. This is not the picture of our world today. In our world today, the majority of people in our world do not bow down to King Jesus. In fact, most of the world is in open rebellion against God. Most of the world would think us fools for doing what we're doing this morning. But the promise of Isaiah is that one day, on the great day of the Lord, whenever Messiah returns... 
all nations, all nations, all cultures, all peoples of the earth, imagine the scene, flocking to King Jesus to bring tribute, to bring their worship, and to find his rest. Incredible picture. So Isaiah, as he paints this picture of the renewal of all things and the coming of Messiah, is holding out for us a hope that is so grand that it's almost hard to even imagine. So the question for us this morning is, so what? What difference does it make? What difference does it make in our lives on Monday through Saturday? Because today we can all say, yeah, I believe that. That's awesome. That's cool. But how does it affect Monday through Saturday? Let me give you three responses to this future hope. The first one is, make this your hope and trust. Make it the core of your hope. It seems like to me that the church in our day is not doing a very good job. The church in our culture is not doing a very good job of making this our hope. It seems to me that the church in America is far more busy making this world our hope, looking for our best life now. And this is exposed whenever whenever things go wrong in our life, whenever things don't work, whenever hardship comes, whenever the least amount of suffering comes, and we're so unsettled by it. We're so undone by it. And it betrays and shows this is not really our hope. You can also see, I think, in the, the fear that pervades the American church today. You know, this might be a newsflash for you, but our culture is rapidly changing, even right here in the Bible Belt. You know, we have enjoyed, as Christians, years and years and years where the nation as a whole largely adopted Christian values. But things are a-changing very, very fast. And as our culture turns away from those values, the thing most disturbing to me is the response of Christians with fear and with anger, with, with fear of the future. If we're looking at this hope right, what have we to fear? This past week, Phil Robertson, the duck commander, the duck dynasty, whom I'm trying to impersonate here, he, uh, did you hear what happened? So he had an interview with GQ magazine, and boy, they just, they set him up. You know, they, they, they're trying to sell magazines, okay? And so they knew this redneck from Louisiana, this is just going to be easy. You know, we're just going to hook him in right here, and they did. They did, and he took it. I'm good for him. So, so they, he, they asked him the question, what, what sins do you see in our world today? And he told them. And he mentioned that one that you cannot mention in our culture today, homosexuality. And the response was almost instantaneous. They sold their magazines. A&E fires the duck commander. Can you believe it? And, and there's been all this backlash. And I think the thing to me that's most disturbing is not what happened there. I mean, why would we expect those who are not followers of Jesus to share our values. That doesn't make sense to me. Why would we expect someone who's not united to Jesus 
to live out His values. Okay? We live those out. That's for us to do. And so as I see the response of the church, there's all this anger and this fear. This fear that we're going to lose the future, that we're going to lose our culture. If we're reading this right, we're not going to lose. In fact, God is going to win and we will reign with Him on the new earth forever and ever and ever. We have nothing to fear. So put your trust in it. Secondly, this. Become an agent of it now. You know, Isaiah doesn't just give this picture, this promise and this hope to Israel just to fortune tell, just to tell them what's going to happen. He doesn't say, hey guys, I got something really cool I want to share with you that's going to happen in the future. It's not why he does it. He shows them this picture in order to activate them in the here and now. In other words, to say, this is coming. This is your future. This is where everything is headed. So live now in light of what's coming. Do justice now. What ought we to do? How ought we to live in light of the fact that one day, King Jesus will come and fill the whole earth with perfect justice in His reign? What ought we to do? Do justice now. Because we as His people are like a big signpost. That's our vocation in this world, to be a big signpost that points the world ahead to a future kingdom, to a coming reality. And so we're to bear witness to what will soon happen in Him through the ways that we live it out. So how do we bear witness to a coming justice that will fill the earth? Do justice now. Take up the cause of the orphan, the widow, of the poor. Be about mercy and justice, and in doing so, we bear witness to His coming rule. What ought we to do in light of the coming renewal of all things? Well, I think it's that we ought to take care of the earth. It would seem like to me. What ought we to do in light of the fact that one day, Messiah will bring all nations to Himself? Well, it seems like we should go and announce the gospel to all nations, not just across the pond, but here, too, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, to announce the good news of the gospel and to invite them to rally to King Jesus now, to find rest, just like we have. Become agents of it now. Live now in light of what's coming. So put your hope in it, become an agent of it. Thirdly, rejoice. Maybe the most important. Rejoice. What Isaiah just described is going to happen. You get that? Can you work that down into your heart and into your mind? If you do, you will rejoice. That's what we're called to be. A people of joy a people of such hope that whenever we face brokenness in this world, suffering, hardship that will come, yes, we enter into those things, but we're unmoved. There is an underlying joy that pervades it all. I'm astonished at how the Christmas hymns, how much they capture the the full perspective of all that Christ will bring. You know, the renewal of creation at the end Here after the sermon, we're going to sing joy to the world. And the scope in that hymn of His renewal of all things, of all 
creation, longing and crying out, which in fact, Scripture talks about a great deal. In Romans 8.28, the Apostle Paul says that creation itself is longing and waiting in eager expectation for its liberation from bondage to decay. Imagine that. He says creation is longing and expecting this. It's amazing. Trees, rocks, places.